0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to The Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And I just want to quickly call out our patrons, our supporters on the show, David, Stephen, uh, and others who have been faithfully giving and uh, supporting our efforts here. I want to thank you for that and uh, for how crucial you are to our ministry. Thank you for your support. But today we have special guests with us. Dr. and Pastor Tom Hicks uh, from Clinton, Louisiana, First Baptist Church there. Pastor Hicks, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's a great honor. I'm glad to be here.
0: And this is actually Pastor Hicks' second time on the show. He was one of our early guests maybe about three years ago. We talked about theonomy, um, had a good discussion there. So it's good going to have our brother back. Uh, but brother, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe for people who aren't familiar with your work and, and who you are.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I serve as the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, which is a little town hardly heard of, but it's just north of Baton Rouge, about 45 minutes north of central Baton Rouge. So if you know where Louisiana is and Baton Rouge, we're just north of there. And uh, so I serve at that church. Um, I, I received my Ph.D. from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I also got my Master of Divinity. And I serve on the board of directors at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary and am an adjunct professor for the same school for CBTS, but also an adjunct professor for uh, the International Reformed Baptist Seminary based in Mansfield uh, for systematic theology there. Uh, My wife, Joy, and I have four kids, and so there's a little bit Well thank you, brother.
0: Um, and it it seems like you guys, I I know you and others, you guys get pulled between both seminaries. You're doing a lot of cross-pollination there,
1: (laughs) and overseas, and so yeah,
0: keeping you busy.
1: Much work to be done.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, our discussion today is gonna revolve around the law gospel distinction, and you know, this really is a not a peripheral discussion as it relates to our faith. This goes really to the heart of our faith, how we're saved and, and important distinctions and, and discussions surrounding that. Um, so we like as Reformed folks to use that phrase, law gospel distinction. And I think it's kind of become a cliche at this point when people use it. Um, but what is a distinction and, and why do we utilize it so much, especially as Reformed folks?
1: Yeah, well, in, in a way, I would say it's it's kind of amazing that now we can say it's cliche because it's mm. Out there so much now more than before, but I'll just start by mentioning that when I was in seminary, the law gospel distinction was never discussed, it wasn't part Mm -hmm. of the discussion at all. Um, also, many of the leading voices, reformed voices, uh, um, you know, popular type voices said that the law gospel distinction is Lutheran. That was a very common idea. It was they denied it was reformed, they said that's not really reformed. I had fellow students in seminary who said, you know, you're, you're mentioning this law gospel distinction, but where are you getting that from? And uh, I got it out of reform theologies is where I found it. The older ones, that some of them were just being republished back in that day, you mm. know, when I was in school. Um, and and what I found is the more I read the older Reformed tradition, the more I found that this was everywhere, the, Reformed, mm. the law gospel distinction. And it's not only in those systematic theologies, but it's integral to the whole system of reform theology. Um, just to historically, to, to show you why it's so important, uh, the, the law gospel distinction is essential to the reformation. You would have no reformation if you didn't have this dichotomy or juxtaposition between law and gospel in justification. So why is justification by faith alone the uh, the material cause of the Reformation. It's because there's a we're either justified by our own works of obedience to the law or because of Christ's works of obedience to the law. And that's the gospel, that we're justified by Christ's works of obedience to the law. So, so uh, there can't be a Reformation without this distinction. So it's ironic to me that this has been called a Lutheran distinction, but you'll find it all through there, all the way back to Calvin, and you find it in Zwingli, and you find it in all the... Reformed scholastics, you find it in the early uh, particular Baptists. Um, so what is it? What is uh, this distinction? Well, maybe it would be helpful to think of it first in terms of of the Reformed hermeneutic of the Bible. So I'm going to kind of ease into what what this distinction is, but begin just with our hermeneutic. And our hermeneutic says that the Bible is one book written by one God. Mm -hmm. And since God has inspired the entire of special revelation, then we treat it the way we would a book uh, written by one author, but not only by any one author, but by a perfect author. Mm -hmm. So that everything he says is completely true, which means later revelation cannot misunderstand earlier revelation. Mm, Yep. Later revelation instead explains and makes explicit what is less clear and what is only implied in earlier revelation. And when we read the Bible that way, we might not come away from Genesis uh, 2 and think, well, there's a covenant of works there if that's all we're reading. But if we we go all the way to the New Testament and we see how the New Testament handles that early revelation in Genesis... Then we better come away saying there's a covenant of works there so let me me tell you what i mean so let's just take romans we could do this with hebrews we could do it with galatians but romans is a good place to to see it really clearly is that when romans is talking about biblical revelation it goes back to to genesis and genesis and romans 1 2 and 3 it says jews and gentiles everybody is under the law and condemned under it because all have sinned. Mm -hmm. And so that's the law, which says do this and live and no one can. And so the law is found in Romans one to three. And it historically, the reformers called that the covenant of works. Now, some Mm -hmm. say it's a covenant of life or whatever, but it shouldn't be called a covenant of creation or a covenant of life because it is, it's a the terms, though it is a covenant for life, but so is a covenant of grace, a covenant for life, right? Yeah. It doesn't get at the root of it. Uh, covenant of creation is better, but the the terms of that original garden covenant were perfect obedience for eternal life, for the blessing of life, which God condescended to promise. But that the terms themselves were based on strict justice. That's Romans 1 to 3. Uh If you pick up again in the second part of Romans 3, and you go uh, all the way to Romans, first part of Romans 5, you see the gospel, the gospel proper, which is that Jesus did this. Uh So you're supposed to do this and live. That's the law covenant. But since you cannot do this for life, because all have sinned, Jews and Gentiles both, Christ did this for our life Uh to pay its penalty, pay the law's penalty. To accomplish the law's life blessing and righteousness or justification uh, b- by the, by perfect obedience to the law but in jesus right so that's the law and the gospel in romans one to five in romans the second part of romans five draws back and says paul says let me show you these are this is the federal contract the federal headship contrast between adam and christ you're either in adam condemned under the law or you're in christ justified because of his perfect obedience right Mm -hmm. then of course why not sin so that grace may abound that's romans 6 and basically romans 6 gets into a doctrine of union with christ well because you're joined to jesus and you get the blessing not only of justification but also of sanctification and that brings us to the covenant of grace so romans really covenant of grace is already being talked about earlier in romans but it gets into the fullness of it in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Mm. um, showing us that we're justified and sanctified in the covenant of grace. So here's, you're asking about law and gospel. I'm arguing it's covenants. So the law gospel contrast is based on a hermeneutic that leads to the reformed covenant theology that then is the foundation of the law gospel contrast. So here I'll put it systematically for you. The law is the covenant of works, the law as a covenant says, do this and live. The gospel as a pure promise that says Christ did this and live, it's done for you, is the covenant of redemption. We mm-hmm. accomplished the law as our substitute, as our mediator in our stead. And then the covenant of grace is the application of Christ's accomplishment to us in the gospel law uh, continuum so here's this is this is important so there's some today Doug Wilson for example is very strong that there is no law gospel hermeneutic in the bible mm. but the reformers said that the covenant of grace begins with gospel and then it goes to law and if we're in the covenant of grace we have to read the whole bible uh as a gospel law continuum mm. What does that mean well it's this it's that the law doesn't save us the law doesn't give us strength to obey it rather the gospel in the hand of the holy spirit does and so a popular illustration of this that i think is helpful is that the law is like the rudder on a sailboat that cannot move that boat right Mm -hmm. so the rudder if you're if i'm back there moving the rudder it won't the boat really won't be propelled forward you might you know make it shake a little bit or something. but the rudder is not a propulse it's not a, a something that has to do with propulsion. Instead, the sails uh, that catch the wind are what propel that sailboat. And so the gospel is like the wind and the sails of faith and the law is like the rudder on the back of the sailboat. Now what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm arguing that in the covenant of grace that's how we obey God. We obey God in the covenant of grace because we've been purchased by free grace. We're not doing anything for righteousness before God. We're not trying to get saved or to remain saved. Rather, we obey because Jesus has bought us with a price, because we're so grateful, because we love him, because we want to know him more, but not out of a legal fear or terror, but rather out of joy. And yes, you can, there's a fear of, fatherly discipline, which is medicinal, but it's never destructive, right? In the covenant of grace. So if you have the the doctrine of the covenant of grace, which begins in Genesis 3.15, and it goes to the end of the Bible, then you have to have a law gospel hermeneutic, which says every command of the Bible to a believer, every command of the Bible comes to us as a command of grace. It's a command that that comes to us on the basis of Christ's accomplishment. Mm. And every redemptive promise is a redemptive promise of the covenant of grace. That is the the law gospel hermeneutic in reformed theology. So every command is law. Every redemptive promise is gospel. And we have to get them in the right order to preach to the church. Right. And the right order is first is a redemptive promise. And second is a command. And if I come to a text that doesn't have the command in it, then I bring that then 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 I bring it. And if I come to a text that doesn't have the promise in it, then I bring that promise from Mm. from the context and, and from the wider body of scripture. So, so here's what I'm saying. What is the law gospel contrast? The law as a covenant is the covenant of works. The gospel as a pure promise is the covenant of redemption, but the law as a naked rule or standard comes to us in the covenant of grace on the basis of redemptive promises. Mm-hmm. You see? And so that's how I'd frame up the law gospel distinction hermeneutically and in terms of reformed theology. And I, I would I would say it's essential. So you asked, I think, why do we use this so much, or why should we use this distinction? Well, for two reasons. It's really one reason, but the essential reason is um, if we don't get this distinction right, we'll put our works into justification because the distinction is primarily a distinction for the doctrine of justification, rather the dichotomy, that we're not justified on the basis of our works, but Christ's, which are freely given to us by grace through faith alone. But we also make the distinction in our sanctification so that we don't flip back into thinking that we have to work to maintain our relationship before God or to be justified before him or to obtain saving blessings, but rather we work from the promise of life. And the command comes to us in that context. So I think this distinction is essential for explaining the Bible. I think this law gospel distinction is essential for maintaining the doctrine of justification, and it's essential for faithful pastoral ministry, preaching and counseling and discipling. Amen. Amen.
0: Um, I guess a couple of follow-up questions to that. So you mentioned the historical theology side where um, people at your time in school didn't see this as really a reform doctrine. I mean, biblical doctrine aside, do you think that was just uh, maybe because these historical realities were becoming more coverable or people just weren't reading the material?
1: Yeah, I think some of it is just simply that, um, we we were still in the process of recovering some of these older works and if they had been reprinted or translated like i remember chirton had mm-hmm. just been translated in the you know right before i got to seminary I, I think and so probably they hadn't even had time to read that i mean mm-hmm. frankly you know um we didn't we certainly didn't have van maastricht or yeah you know anything like we've got today they had Calvary. translation
0: takes a long time
1: <laughs> it really does and so the, yep. the recovery of all that and re- translation of it was is huge today so we have resources we didn't have so i just think there was a lacking there but secondly um i think there was a lack of study of historical theology in general because mm. biblical studies was primary and mm. so there was Sort of a generalist understanding of what what historical theology was, and you would read secondary re- literature and talk about what you found and whatever secondary literature was there, but you wouldn't you wouldn't read much in historical theology. Real the real work was you know in exegesis of the text.
0: Mm. No, so, that makes sense. And then looking at the theological side more, um, so you're talking about. You know, Doug Wilson and, and some of his understandings like of the covenant of works. I wonder if some of that collapsing of the law gospel distinction on his side comes from the fact he doesn't believe in a covenant of works. I believe it is all gracious and it, it just seems to all run together from his point of view.
1: Yeah, he he well, there is a problem with what he says, and you can see it where um Doug Wilson still affirms the old federal vision statement. So you can go find right. this online, yeah. Google it. Mm -hmm. they hold to a covenant of life. I think they call it covenant of life, but they say that had Adam obtained eternal life and glory or something like that, you can go read what they say. He would have received it by faith alone, Mm. which he says he's trying to avoid any kind of merit by which he could, Adam could be praised or which undermines um, god's meticulous providence in the garden of eden but what it's really doing and we'll get to this later in some of the questions that i know that you're going to ask but it's undermining strict justice and god or it's not articulating it correctly so mm-hmm. i'm concerned about doug wilson's doctrine of the covenant of works first he doesn't like calling it that and that that raises a question well why wouldn't you call a mm-hmm. covenant that the covenant of works, if justice requires works of obedience to the law, why wouldn't you call it that? Um, but secondly, because he says that Adam would have been righteous before God, would have received life and glory before God by faith alone. Which then I go, Well, then was then what does that have to do? How does that relate to our faith alone? I mean, are we are we righteous and glorified before God by faith alone, the way Adam was by faith alone? It's a it's a, it, at best it's a accidental equivocation of the words faith alone or at worst it's a it is just a straight up um false teaching because mm. you know? adam wouldn't have been glorified by faith alone he, no. would, he would have been re- re- received life and and glory on the basis of god's condescension in that covenant to promise life and glory but because of his works of obedience to god's law Mm. With no forgiveness possible in that particular arrangement, because with one sin he's out, right? Right. So, I, I do think it raises problems for Doug Wilson's system. Yeah. Yep.
0: yep. And we'll get into the covenant theology a little bit later, but I think that seems to be a critical theme as we're talking about this discussion. Um, jumping a little bit back to the historical theology side in our tradition of the particular Baptists, how did they deal with? issues that came up as it relates to justification law gospel distinction. We know that Richard Baxter would have been uh, writing around this time. Um, How were they interacting with him or maybe his teachings or people like him?
1: Yeah, well, our forefathers, along with the Reformed Orthodox, strongly rejected Richard Baxter. So he Uh was Richard Baxter. I will need to explain his position a little so you can understand it. But he was um, trying to propose a halfway house between Arminianism and Calvinism at every level, but in justification as well. Mm. And he was a very eclectic uh, theologian. He was not seminary trained. Mm. Uh, he, he read what he wanted to read and kind of came up with his own system. Um, but what he, what he basically did was he denied the absolute justice of God That's a strong charge, but that's the charge that I believe it should be leveled against him and was, because here's what he said. He said, God gave Adam a law of perfect obedience, such that had Adam obeyed, Adam would have been glorified, right? Which so far we agree.
0: Uh
1: But since Adam sinned against God in that covenant, the remedy was... God to rescind the law by judicial fiat, by kingly rather, kingly fiat, that because God is the king, the sovereign, he just rescinded that old law that would required perfect obedience. And he instituted a new law, mm. which all it required was imperfect obedience. <laughs> so <laughs> the new law this it entails forgiveness. As long as you're living penitently and faithfully and strivingly, you're actually perfectly obeying that new law by Im- imperfect obedience. You mm-hmm. see? So the new law had the old in it in a sense that there is still a perfect standard, but the total picture of the covenant, the law as a covenant uh, relaxed it so that if you sin against it, you can still have your sins canceled because if you f- trustingly repent and that's all the new new law requires. And but but in order that God not look like a softy or look like He's just going to change the law, Jesus had to come to show how seriously He takes the law, mm. to die on the cross. That I'm not going to just change my law for any old you know any old reason. This is what it takes. I want to show you I'm really deadly serious about the law. And so this is called the governmental theory of the atonement, where He comes in and to preserve His government. Uh, God comes into this world, you know, in the person of the Son, and, and dies, but this is nothing like a penal substitutionary atonement for Baxter. This is, um, strictly speaking, Jesus didn't have to die. It was practical. It was a practical reason that he died, Mm. uh, not because of justice. And so in that sense, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us according to Baxter's view. Uh, and so, so. He's unlike Wilson in that way. It would be unfair to say Wilson is a total Baxterian, mm-hmm. like that, because he's not. And a lot of these federal visionists today are not Baxterian at that level, but they are Baxterian in that they still want obedience, our obedience, at least somewhere in justification. And that's going to be the issue: is why. So, so how did how did uh, early Baptists handle him? Um, well, I would just say the same way Owen John Owen did. Mm. Uh, how do they handle Richard Baxter? Uh, here's what Keech said. I'll just quote him for you. He said, We ought to keep clean from all errors, but especially such as our capital ones. I'm afraid many good Christians are not sensible of the sad danger they're in. Mm. I cannot see but that the doctrine some men strive to promote is but little better than popery in new dress. And that's a kind of a classic phrase. Mm-hmm. That's Baxterianism. Popery in new dress nay, one of the worst branches of it, too. Shall any who pretend to be true preachers of the gospel go about to mix their own works or their sincere obedience with Christ's righteousness, nay, to put their obedience in the room and the place of Christ's obedience as that in which they trust and desire to be found? Let me exhort you all to stand fast in the precious faith faith you have received, particularly about this great doctrine of justification. Give yourselves to prayer and to the due and careful study of God's word. So that's uh, Benjamin Keach, but let me read you a little of what Fuller said, because he interacted directly with Richard Baxter as well. But he said, I find but little satisfaction in Mr. Baxter's disputations on justification. He says a great deal about it, distinguishing it into different stages, pleading for evangelical works as necessary to it. Yet he disavows all works as being the causes or grounds on account of which we are justified and professes to plead for them only as concomitants. So even Baxter was not saying we're justified on the ground of all these other works. You know, he he was saying they're just accompaniments and we're justified by them as accompaniments. Just as we say repentance is necessary forgiveness and faith to justification, Uh, Though these are not considerations moving God to bestow these blessings. In short, I find it much easier to express my own judgment on justification than to say wherein I disagree or differ with Mr. Baxter. I consider justification to be God's graciously pardoning our sins, accepting us to favor, exempting us from the curse of the law, and entitling us to the promises of the gospel, not uh, not on account or in consideration of any holiness in us ceremonial or moral, before, in, or after believing, but purely in reward of the vicarious obedience and death of Christ. And that's the key idea right there. Why are we justified? Purely in reward of the vicarious obedience and death of Christ, which on our believing in him is imputed to us or reckoned as if it were ours, nor do I consider any holiness in us to be necessary as a concomitant to justification, Uh except what is necessarily included in the believing nor would I feel a union of heart with those who are commonly considered to be present day as Baxterians who hold with the gospel being a new remedial law and represent sinners as contributing to their own conversion. So there you have Keech and Fuller both. Fuller was very, you're not going to find a broader, a more broadly spirited Catholic early Baptist than Fuller. He was very Gracious, and so for Fuller to raise questions, serious questions about Baxter shows how serious it was. Mm. Uh, so,
0: well, wow. yeah, so it, it sounds like he Baxter made an impact quite a bit in the negative way <laughs> in the, the reform yeah. world. Um, yeah, it's I find it interesting that even among reform circles today, how much high regard Baxter is held, and I think in a negative sense, where his errors tend to be pushed to the side and the things that he said that were right are put front and center, which I, I think can be problematic.
1: Amen. Yeah. We have better people than Baxter. Really? Yeah. I mean, why people <laughs> say, well, why not read the saints everlasting rest? Can you read that and benefit from it? Sure. I'm not going to tell you yeah. not to read exactly. it. At
0: all. We can read Thomas Aquinas and benefit exactly. from
1: him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's right. You know, yeah. but the truth is he's not really one of ours. That's the point His Baxter is not, Reformed Orthodox, can you read them with profit? if you read with discernment like anybody? Sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yep, with a big caveat. <laughs> right. That's right. So going back to the theological discussion, so once we conflate those categories, um, what danger do we find ourselves in?
1: Yeah, I would say there are four dangers of conflating law and gospel. Um, the first and most essential problem that we run into is it compromises the holy justice of god Mm. if you do not distinguish law and gospel you necessarily Mm. compromise the doctrine of divine righteousness and holiness Mm. Um, and here's think of it you know if you put in put imperfect human works in justification anywhere imperfect human obedience in justification anywhere then God's holiness and justice are called into question because what he's doing is he's calling righteous something that isn't. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, if you think of like the Roman Catholics, that they, they accuse us, they accuse the Protestants of, of not having real righteousness and therefore compromising God's justice because we are not inherently righteous. How can God, you know, announce a legal fiction, they would say, upon us. How can God justly call us righteous if we're not? That's a legal fiction. But the reformers just reversed that and they said, actually, there's no Roman Catholic in this world who is truly righteous on God's standard, which mm-hmm. is perfect. God doesn't say, do not lie except sometimes or if you repent, or, you know, he says, don't lie, you know, don't murder. Yep. it's strict it's absolute and so the reformer said the roman view is a legal fiction and the protestant view is realism it's 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 saying that god can only call righteous christ's perfect righteousness mm. and thus can only call us righteous if we are in him covenantally by promise right it's the only way we can be called righteous and so I would argue that if, if you conflate law and gospel, and which what does that mean? That means that uh, the law is not strict, but it, it's somehow flexible, and the gospel doesn't give the total obedience of the law to you in justification in Christ, but instead promises some cooperation, you know, so that the law is relaxed and the gospel is softened, then you have a law gospel collapse which i know is popularly online called a gospel, <laughs> right it's like it's a conflation well the the first thing to fall is god mm. you know that's the doctrine to come down is the, the holiness and the justice of god so that's the first problem with it um secondly practically it throws believers back on their own obedience for justification Mm. and enslaves them to a work for righteousness way of relating to God. And so if you tell people, you know, that you're not justified because Jesus perfectly kept the law on your behalf and gives it to you freely as a free gift uh, in, in the gospel, and you tell them, look, you have to obey for your justification. You must submit to God and obey God for your justification. Then how much do I have to obey? You yeah. know, and am I really obeying? And I start looking inwardly to myself, and I start, you know, uh, trying to either trust myself or being unable to trust myself, or thinking I'm trustworthy or I'm not. Tr- am I obedient enough? And it leads to a slavish sweat bath, really, of uh-huh. of of works. It's terribly discouraging and disheartening to God's people, um, and so that's practically what it does. Third, it, relatedly to that, is it robs believers of their assurance and consolation in Christ. And so, historically, the, the basis of the Reformed doctrine of assurance was the Reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: Cardinal Bellerman said somewhere that the heresy of the Protestant reformers isn't so much their doctrine of justification by faith alone, but their doctrine of assurance. Mm. He hated that the most because what it does is it takes the power of assurance out of the church and it puts it in Jesus. And so it's stripping the church of authority and it's giving it all to Jesus that Christ alone gives us assurance of our salvation. And if you put works or obedience and justification anywhere, either in the ground or the means of it or the instrument, you put it anywhere anywhere then you're throwing bel- believers back on themselves for their assurance and it robs them of their consolation. And that leads to two problems. When believers do not have assurance of salvation, we're not just saying, oh, these poor believers, they can't be comforted, although that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're saying also, though, is it is it leads to one of two problems. One, either to anxious fears and depression that, that is not loving, won't be lovingly obedient to God, mm-hmm. can't glorify Him. Or, or two, it leads to a form of proud and confident obedience that trusts in oneself rather than God and, and seeks one's own glory. So it leads to a theology of glory, mm-hmm. uh, of proud or discouragement and depression uh, in, the, in the weak. Um, both forms of strivings, are false they're all self-trusting self-glorifying they're not obedience at all instead all true obedience in the faith all true sanctification flows from faith and assurance and the sufficiency of christ's work and a, a certain confidence in all of his redemptive promises now are we all certainly confident all the time no can doubtful you know legal Believers still have a legal heart and still be saved and sanctified. Yes. I mean, you and I probably both admit that we're, I know I would admit that, you know, I don't have this, I don't have justification by faith alone, perfectly down in my heart. You know, mm-hmm. rem, that's why I have to preach it to myself all the time. But but when I believe, the more I believe the promises of God, the stronger my faith is mm-hmm. to endure to the point that really a believer can give their life away For Christ, if he is absolutely certain that God loves him and he's going to go to heaven, then he can obey all the way to death. You know, so um, that's the third. So we're saying you're asked what what happens when this distinction becomes a conflation. First, it compromises the justice of God. Second, it throws believers back on their own obedience for justification. Third, it robs believers of their assurance and consolation in Christ. And then fourth, it robs Christ of all the glory in justification. You know why? Why am Why am I justified? Well, Jesus obeyed completely, and I obeyed a little. Hmm. You know? Well, yep. so Christ alone doesn't get all the glory for my justification. I'm I'm sharing it with Him. Um, so those are the four problems I think when you conf- that happen when you conflate law and gospel, and you destroy justification by faith alone.
0: So how would we speak of um, infused righteousness? Because that comes up. Well, that's come up before what's the proper usage of that terminology?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you can talk that way and it's not unorthodox to say that <laughs> that you have a, an imputed righteousness and justification and an infused righteousness and sanctification. and the Bible uses that kind of terminology sometimes about you know an, an inherent righteousness, a practical righteousness of living um, before God. That what it means is you're not outwardly blamable, you know, that you, you're you in, in terms of the new covenant. You've not done anything that that you could be charged with disciplinable sin to, you mm-hmm. know, you've not violated the church covenant in that way. And so you're you're a righteous Christian. You're walking in practical righteousness. Um, So you can use it that way. I personally prefer just to in a systematic sense would distinguish between righteousness and holiness. Mm. I would say that we have infused holiness uh, that is infused within us that then works out in in practical good works, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that righteousness is imputed, but holiness is infused. I prefer that language so saints don't get confused. But if I'm in a text that's talking about righteousness in a practical sense, I'll just explain it and what it means, you know. So that's a great question, though.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I it's based. People might associate that with the Romish, like a Trent understanding. Right. You know, we're infused with righteousness, and then we're justified, right?
1: Right, and that's the Romish problem. Yes. Yeah. Yep.
0: All right. Going back to the the covenant theology discussion, um, it, we've touched on this a little bit already. But how does covenant theology help frame this discussion better?
1: Yeah. Um, well, so covenants have a lot to do with this, and I've already kind of talked about them. So I want to. I want to just back up and go one step deeper even on what's happening with the covenants. So covenants are are positively commanded things by God, right? So you have the covenant of works, some of the big covenants in the Bible. We have the covenant of redemption. We have the covenant of, of grace. They're positively, I shouldn't use commanded, they're instituted. And then you have all the biblical covenants, you know, of Abrahamic covenant and pre before that, the Noahic and, and so forth. And we have to understand each covenant in terms of its own terms. But what's happening is God is doing something different in all these covenants. Um, but the question that is, that's the most important is, is there something immutable underneath them all? And yes, it's God, obviously. So God's own moral character, his own perfect holiness doesn't change and must cut through all the covenants you see? Mm. So Uh where I'm going with this is that false versions of covenant theology use the doctrine of covenant basically to say that God can posit unjust requirements for justification. And because they're covenantal, they're therefore just because God says they are. So it would be like, uh, as long as you perform covenant, uh, works of covenantal faithfulness. So let me just frame it in terms of like maybe a strong version of the federal vision. Uh-huh. Uh, this is, this part is not Doug Wilson. This would be some others that would do this, but they would say they would deny that justification has anything to do with strict, perfect justice really in the Bible. Um, and they have ways of attacking that idea itself, but they'll, they say that you're baptized and, and joined to Christ in the covenant of grace. And then to rem- at that moment, you're justified. And then to maintain your justification, you have to perform works of covenantal obedience. And mm. if you apostatize, you'll lose your justification falling out of the covenant of grace. But what, what I would submit is that that's just, that's basically nominalism uh, philosophically speaking, which says that God, because he's the King, he's the sovereign. He has the authority to name what he wants to call just, Mm. you know, and, and could change it, I suppose, you know, he can just name in injustice justice because there's no one on this earth. Who's a sinner who is perfectly obedient. And so if you have God calling some imperfect form of covenantal faithfulness, uh, righteous. And then you, you want to rename that, the Federal Vision did this too. You want to rename that uh, fatherly justice. Mm. It's, not, it's not strict justice, this is fatherly justice, you know, by which we're, we're righteous and those covenants. Then that's a problem. Um, we, we, that is a misunderstanding of what justice is, to say that God by covenant can change it. So classical Reformed theology Said something different. They insisted that God's eternal holiness and righteousness must ground the covenantal conditions, especially justification. Mm. Um, And so what they said was think of it in terms of the big covenants. God's absolute justice required perfect human obedience in the covenant of works for justification and life for Adam and Eve. It couldn't have been different. The moment God condescended to promise eternal life to Adam because of God's perfect justice, it had to be perfect obedience in that covenant because Mm. that's all that is just, right? Then his absolute justice also is only satisfied by Christ's perfect obedience in the covenant of redemption for justification and life. Uh, God could not have uh, accepted... sinful obedience from Jesus. I mean, it's a blasphemy almost to even say those words, but he had to perfectly obey to satisfy God's justice, both by paying the penalty and earning the blessing. And, And then finally, God's absolute justice means that the only way we can be justified or called just in the covenant of grace is because of Christ's perfect obedience, which we only receive and rest in, by faith alone. Um, And so covenant theology cannot be as important because we have to understand it's not as though the covenants can override a more fundamental reality of God's character Mm -hmm. and his justice. Rather, the covenants must express that, and they do in the Bible. So I don't know if that, this is really getting into an issue of philosophical realism and nominalism. Mm. Those who are interested in that, you know, is, is the question is, is a real absolute righteousness what's required for justification? Or can God, because he's the king, name some lesser obedience just because he is king? Mm. And I would say no way can he do that because he is he is pure justice.
0: Yep, that's right. You almost sense a little hint of Lutheranism in there, too, with the, the sense of real apostasy that they present. You know, you're doing good today, but you got to be justified again tomorrow if you sin. You got to be declared righteous again and again and again. Um, it's and then it's like, okay, is God's is God really being just, or is He not? <laughs> so I agree. Yeah. Um, kind of continuing along the lines of federal vision, um, you know, in the understanding of faith in the covenant of grace, why is that such a problem uh, as it relates to the law gospel distinction?
1: Um, The federal the federal vision wants to see obedient faith as the condition of justification in the covenant of grace. So I'll just take Doug Wilson here, you know, and for those who, who aren't aware, you know, probably most of your listeners are, but. Wilson denies that the name, the label, Federal Vision, but he affirms all of it, the previous content. We mm-hmm. always believe, right? So he's still as Federal Vision as he's ever been. Yep. He just doesn't like being called that. But what he says is that faith's instrumentality is its obedience. You know, and I I wrote an article uh, with Garrett Walden about this, and he responded with an article, and you can go read both of those. But basically, he just doubled down. He just said, Yeah, it is obedient. your faith's instrumentality is its obedience because you have to, you have to when when God says you must rest and receive the righteousness of Christ, and He he commands faith to do that when faith obeys and submits to God and resting and receiving, that's its instrumental character, right? Which sounds, you know, it sounds like maybe he 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 got out of the, the issue there. Uh, but the problem is this, that Wilson is not answering the issue at stake in justification. Uh, he's, he's not answering the main question that's being asked in in justification and in the Bible. And it is this, how can God justify the unjust? Mm. And if your answer to that is, well, because the unjust obey, <laughs> submit and obey, that's an inadequate answer. Or, or how about I put it this way? Why is God not unjust to call unjust faith just? Because what we're talking about here is an imperfect faith, isn't it? You know, even Wilson would say that. Is When God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is it possible to perfectly obey that command? I mean, are you sitting here a perfect believer right now? Have you ever had perfectly flawless faith? I haven't, you know. And so, really, my sa- my I'm ne- I've never really actually obeyed that command in terms of strict justice. <laughs> you see, but wh- so how can God call that sinful, sin laden faith just becomes a question, um, and and, and then how can God bless? our imperfect faith with that uh, verdict? Well, the the historic answer is it's not because faith's obedient. That faith is a justifying instrument in justification, not because it is obedient, but faith is a justifying instrument in justification by virtue of faith's content only, which is Christ and his imputed righteousness. Mm -hmm. So faith's instrumentality isn't because I'm imperfectly believing it's because uh because it passively receives and because christ alone uh, is the object of that faith now is faith and be very clear is is faith justifying faith obedience even in our when we're justified yes but it's a good work yeah it is it's a good work it's actually commanded by the first commandment which says you shall have no other gods before me well how can you do that if you don't trust him right Have to believe you know so it's a good work it's a command of the law um so uh the 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 point is though that faith justifies not not because it's obedient and actually no obedience can can be said to be part of our justification even in the instrumental function rather it's only christ's righteousness which faith receives um so i would say that the federal vision is is basically on this score, both antinomian and legalistic. So it's antinomian because it teaches that God says imperfect obedience is covenantal righteousness. Mm. And this compromises God's justice. It's a relaxed law, and it's legalistic because God requires imperfect obedience of us for our righteousness. And, and, and so that makes uh, believers a slave for their righteousness before God. So it's it's interesting. All legalism is is antinomian because it relaxes the law. It doesn't keep the law as a strict standard. Hmm. But it's also legalism obviously is legalistic because it accepts imperfect obedience too and, and requires that's what we strive for. So I don't know if that is that getting at your question or you want to refine.
0: No, I think that's very helpful. Um and I it's interesting you you talk about wilson's understanding of faith if i remember in his book reformed is not enough he talks about faith really being a condition that we meet and then god is obligated to give us the benefits of the new covenant because of our faith and you you start to get into those waters like you're saying there it gets very murky really fast
1: yeah yeah I, I amen brother that's right
0: yeah and and yeah it, it's dangerous it's dangerous language but i given this language is so dangerous it makes you wonder why do people gravitate to this i mean wilson you know i guess you could say he has a niche following but it seems like he's becoming more and more prominent and his views on his views on culture are usually put front and center but his views on theology are kind of snuck in via trojan horse it seems Uh, why do you think that is um especially in our circles
1: well i mean I do think it's got to do with personalities, in part. Mm,
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah.
1: So some of it, the so today, why is this happening? Well, there. So let me back out behind the personality piece, and then, but I do think a lot has to do with personalities. But there are, um, there are problems that the federal vision is trying to address in today's evangelicalism. So, you know, evangelicalism today is is churchless, privatized, very individualistic, mm. <coughs> anti-authoritarian. Um, and so then Federal Vision comes along and insists that baptism and church membership means something and that your good works and your actual obedience matters. Mm. And, and so they're trying to solve a problem with in evangelicalism that does exist in evangelicalism, <clears throat> but they're solving it in a way different from the Reformed Orthodox. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> so, so the the Reformed Orthodox already solved this problem, and it had to do with union with Christ. So Christ's perfect obedience in the covenant of grace with him, which is not inextricably tied to baptism, though it is related to it. Um, <clears throat> so the, uh, the Reformed Orthodox solved the problem of individualism Uh, through the objectivity of Christ and his work uh, Mm. in the covenant of redemption, not through the objectivity of the temporal covenant of the covenant in in, uh, the church covenant, uh, which we enter into by baptism. (coughs) But I do think a lot of this has to do with just personal things. So I think people are attracted to the federal vision because of those who are advocating it. So, you know, Doug Wilson is still the gateway to the federal vision. He, he has a way with words and a style that attracts a certain kind of people who then <clears throat> study and, and learn his theological influences. Uh, some of those, if you go back to the earlier days of the federal vision, and that's still there now in, in uh, Birmingham, <clears throat> uh, Alabama, you have Peter Lighthart. And James Jordan was his mentor. Those Mm -hmm. are biblical scholars and they're very intelligent and creative exegetes, you know, and so people are attracted some some certain kinds of folks are attracted to theological novelty, or if they've not Mm -hmm. been well versed in the reformed tradition, they don't know what the reformed tradition is. And someone comes and says, Well, this is what it means to be reformed. Well, how how, can they compare that to, you know, that they're just hearing somebody say this is what re- is reformed and it sounds good and it's smart and it's different than what i've heard before and this is this guy has a a a style about him that i really like <clears throat> so they're attracted to that um uh, but but some people are i think are attracted to to federal vision because it it sounds like maybe a secret sauce that's been missing from christianity and Maybe some people want to have something to say to other people that sounds brilliant and provocative, you know. And I, I do think there's a certain type of person that's attracted uh, to that. <clears throat> it would also have to be someone who is not terrified of their own works mm. and abilities, you know. And mm. you know, you you'd have to be someone who's confident in your own intellect to a degree and confident in your own uh, faithfulness as a Christian to begin to buy into these ideas. <clears throat> um, but Jesus says we should come to him like a child, you know, and he didn't come to save the righteous, but he came to save sinners. And uh, so I, I would submit that the gospel in the end is is gonna attract people who are, who are unable to think as, uh, to trust their own thinking or to trust their own works. And they don't know what to think or what to do, but they know who Jesus is. Hmm they know what he's done and they're looking to him to save them so
0: amen amen and i guess as we close out here kind of along those lines (laughs) as we're maybe for someone might be tuning into the show that's new to the gospel or might be an unbeliever and listening what would your takeaway be as we're talking about uh, these categories for someone like that
1: yeah um well, I think it's important to distinguish between anything we do and anything Christ did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we need to distinguish between Christ for us and Christ in us. Mm. Uh, the command to believe is not the gospel. That's a command to us. It's, that's the law. It's a good law of God. But the gospel is what Christ has done. And so faith is a command of the law. The, cos- the gospel is Christ's fulfillment of the law. The law says do, the gospel says done. Faith is something we do. The gospel is something Christ did. Faith is a work of Christ in us. The gospel is a work of Christ for us. Faith is redemption applied. The gospel is redemption accomplished. And if we don't distinguish between our faith and Christ's faithfulness, then we will confuse the two and we'll rob Christ of his glory Uh, for the total accomplishment of our redemption. And that will also end up throwing us back on our own obedience for justification before God.
0: Amen. Yeah. So I think the takeaway from our discussion today is trust Christ, rest in his righteousness. Your works mean nothing as it relates to your salvation. Do not rest in them. Mm They will only damn you at the end because you're being held to God's righteous standard. You cannot obey his law perfectly. You will be held accountable for not doing that. We rest in Christ by faith alone. That righteousness is imputed to us. And we are judicially righteous for God. We stand before him accepted in Jesus Christ. And that's the glorious gospel that we have. And we, we praise God for it and we rest in that. Amen.
1: Amen brother. That's well, right.
0: Pastor Tom, thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate the discussion. I, I think it was very beneficial, and, and it's good to be reminded of these basics sometimes, too. It, even for us believers, it's 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 a precious thing to hear the gospel again and again.
1: Amen. Can I throw up just a few resources? Absolutely.
0: I forgot to mention that.
1: That's all right. Uh, this book I recommend everywhere, uh, but this is The Law and the Gospel. is just republished uh, by Reformation Heritage, and it's by John Cahoon, spelled like colquhoun but it's kahun i highly recommend this he's he's one of the merrowmen he's got other books on saving faith and he's got a book on the covenant of works and one on the covenant of grace so this is it's a good author to study and i highly commend his work Uh, joel beakey really likes this stuff too um so if if you want a direct answer to the federal vision this is older i think it's i don't know how easy it is to get this but this is The Federal Vision and Covenant Theology by Guy Prentice Waters.
0: Mm.
1: So that's a good refutation of the federal vision, which I commend if you can get your hands on it. Some older books uh, on federal vision, if you want to dig into that, this is the Auburn Avenue Theology, Mm. Pros and Cons, right there, debating the federal vision. And then another book, uh, so this has both pro and against federal vision, authors from both sides. But this one is just authors for the federal vision, and it's by uh, edited by Steve Wilkins and uh, Dwayne Garner. <clears throat> so that's a classic uh, on this debate as well. So I commend those to you. One other one I guess I'd recommend is is I, I appreciate it this very much. This is Doctor Waldron. And he wrote Faith, yeah. Obedience, and Justification. It, it's a, a it's his dissertation from Southern Seminary, and he goes through and he he works. He deals with uh, um, historic guys like Luther and Calvin and Sola and the Reformed Confessions, but also the errors of Dan Fuller, Norm Shepard, and Don Garlington. So he's he's working that angle of it. And that's also a very good book that I'd recommend. So there you go.
0: Fantastic. Good resources Mm -hmm. to go and follow up on. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again, Pastor Tom. Appreciate your time. Everyone take care. We'll be back, Lord willing, next week.